House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Welcome to a new season and a new episode of Capital Ideas. It's hard to believe, for me at least, but this is season 16 for our humble podcast. That means that for the past 15 years, I've been saying something along these lines. This is the podcast where members of the majority Democratic caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. They're different ideas every time with a changing cast of characters, but what you can count on is this. There'll be good ideas, ideas about good policies that can improve the lives of people in every corner of the state. They're policies designed to bring people together and make this state a better place to live, work, raise a family, grow a business, retire, and play outside. That's a mouthful, but if you stick around, you'll see what I mean. Today's guest, the first of this short, intense legislative session, is Representative Monica Stonier. Monica represents her neighbors in the 49th Legislative District, which is essentially America's Vancouver. She's an educator when she's not in Olympia, and when she is here, Monica is majority floor leader. That's a big job, and we'll hear about that and more as soon as I stop talking. We recorded this on Monday, January 8th, just a little while before the official start of the 2024 legislative session, and here it is. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Monica Stonier. It's great to see you. So good to be back. You are from the 49th Legislative District. That's America's Vancouver. You're the majority floor leader in the Washington State House of Representatives. You've been doing that for a while now. I'm going to want to talk about a whole lot of things, but also I want to make the point so that you will know it, that this is the first episode of Season 16 <laughs> of Capital Ideas. And the bad joke I like to make is that when we started Capital Ideas, nobody knew what a podcast was. <laughs> and now everybody has one. Yes. So let me talk to you about the 2024 legislative session. It's going to start in about three hours. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it, it starts fast. People hit the ground running hard. So tell me what your day looks like. Well, I'm happy to be here before we even get started um, to visit with you. But when the session begins, even just today on day one, we will open uh, with remarks from the speaker. We will uh, make sure that business is up and ready to go. And then we will even start by introducing a few bills to move right off the House floor so we can make good use of our time. So we're looking forward to being efficient this session. And it just happens that this is a coincidence because I invited you for this show uh, a while back, but it turns out that one of the bills that will be run today is sponsored by you. It's a bill that's bipartisan. It passed 95 to nothing last year, but didn't come through the Senate uh, intact. Um, tell me about the child marriage bill. Well, when we start the session off passing bills, we have to make sure that they are bills that are ready for a vote in the House, which this one having enjoyed strong support in the House last time uh, checks that box. But 
also have to ensure that the other chamber is prepared. And the chair of the committee last year on the Senate side uh, had an agenda that was so robust that she ran out of time for some important bills. And um, she has demonstrated interest in, in hearing this bill. So since the Senate is, is ready for it, we are going to send it over um, early. This is a bill that would end child marriage in Washington state. I think it's important that a young person who is in a marriage, a legally binding uh, agreement, also has the full range of other legal access, like access to attorneys, access to all of the resources they might need if they are in in a coercive or abusive relationship. So if you're married when you're 18, you have access to those things. And if you are not, then your partner, your your spouse is in full control of your finances and legal access. So uh, I just don't think that's safe. And, and we know that young people who have found themselves in this scenario um, would really benefit from this from extended access. And, and one of the things we're talking about here is not generally an 18 year old boy and a 17 year old girl or vice versa. Uh, often this might be a 40-year-old man and a 15-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously something creepy and wrong about that, but it does happen. It does happen. Uh, we're talking about victims of trafficking. We're talking about young people who have been coerced into a relationship with an adult, and then that adult will literally do research to see what the marriage laws are in different states to continue that control. Uh, So again, when young people find themselves in this scenario, I want to ensure they have access to legal and financial support that would help keep them safe. I would like to talk about another bill that that has to do with young people, but it goes way back and begins with, with people who are extremely young. And that is a bill that also passed last year, and it involves finances. And so it may not be back this year, but I don't think that it is going to go away in the next session or two. That involves something called the Future Fund. My cursory reading of this bill tells me it's a great idea, but what do you think as the sponsor? Yeah, I think it is a great idea, and I think there's a lot of coalition support for this bill. Uh, many others may know this concept as baby bonds, um, but our our plan in Washington State uh, under this policy is to uh, take an investment from the state Uh, allow it to grow interest. And then when young people, when little tiny babies are born into poverty in Washington state, they can grow to access that fund as anybody would who has uh, a family with wealth, grandparents with savings accounts. Um, We spend a lot of money in Washington state helping to compensate for the um, needs of people who grow up in generational poverty. And one way to reverse that is to provide some resources for those people when they uh, reach an age where they are ready to start a college experience, if they may, may want to buy a home, start a business, cover the cost of licensure if they're looking to start a new career. All of those things that I've, I'm in a position to provide a little guidance and support to my kids when they reach that point. Um, but if they were born into generational poverty, they would not have access to to those kinds of opportunities. And so our hope is to reverse generational poverty by um, putting people on a different and stronger financial footing when they um, when they reach that age. This bill wouldn't break the bank, but it does involve an investment on this part of the state. This is not a budget year. This is a supplemental budget year when really the budget just gets tweaked. So this is likely to be something that comes up in 2025. Is that the way you would 
Yeah, I mean, I hope we will continue to have the conversation this year to keep the topic alive, but I also am realistic, and I know we're going to have to explore revenue options that we, we may not get to debate this this session. So, you know, we had a creative idea in the past with a constitutional amendment that would allow the state to um, diversify the, the um, investments that this um, fund could access, uh, and the Washington State Investment Board would be of assistance there. That was one creative idea. We're going to need more. We continue to work on it. The treasurer's office has been phenomenally strong in leadership here and will continue to convene regular meetings as they have for for a couple of years to make sure that we are all uh, working on this as much as we can. I would characterize this bill as spend a little bit to save a lot. Yeah, spend a little bit to save a lot, I think. Spend a little bit to improve the lives of young people who are moving um, from their childhood into their adult lives. And then also just recognizing that without intervening, without trying to reverse that generational poverty cycle, uh, we continue to pay for the health care that people can't cover on their own. We continue to pay for the risks and, and challenges of, of folks who do not have the resources to um, pay for a home. We, we continue to pay uh, at the state level for the symptoms of generational poverty. And to me, this makes good sense to invest a little ahead of time to avoid that. Let's move even earlier and talk about Fertility coverage. Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) So we've talked about teenagers now. We've talked about babies. So let's talk about people who are having trouble conceiving a child and their insurance company says, good luck. Yeah. Yeah, it takes, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars for families to uh, start their family if they have fertility challenges. And uh, for people who, again, are, are fortunate enough to have a savings account or access to wealth, this is less of a barrier for them. But for others, we find that um, working families are, are taking additional mortgages out on their homes and putting themselves in, in a financially challenging position just to start a family. And, you know, Dan, you and I know that if there's something wrong with our elbow or our digestive system or when I had eye issues last year, I could go to the doctor and get those solved. But this is just not the kind of care that is easily accessible to everyone. And so my hope is the bill will make it more accessible to others. There's another part of this bill that addresses the preservation of fertility. So for a young person or, well, I guess the story that I'm recalling is someone who testified or at least brought their story to me last year where their child was diagnosed with cancer. And in addition to a seven-year-old struggling with um, not only the diagnosis and the treatment, the hope to have a family someday, should their treatment be successful, was also evaporating. And so the ability to preserve eggs and sperm from young people or from anybody who is dealing with some other healthcare issues where their fertility may be endangered, the preservation here um, just allows that hope to remain alive during a very difficult time. This bill was not unanimous, but it did pass with a decent bipartisan majority last year. Do you expect it to come back on the table in 2024? I do. I do. I, I think we're going to see the bill move again out of the um, health care committee in the House, and I'll do my best to make sure it's prepared for the floor. The concerns around the bill last time were really about 
cost to people paying for their premiums, their health care premiums, uh, if we were to add such expensive care. But what we know is that this care is not as expensive as originally thought. And so a report came out this last year that had the estimated cost coming in at about half of what the anticipated cost was last year. So I think that gives us a little bit more hope for the bill. And not everybody needs this kind of care. Not everybody needs this kind of care, and not everybody uses the full range that the cost was set at, which is probably another reason why it came in at a lower cost. A great deal of people find their fertility challenges resolved in the first stages and the first phases of addressing it. Let's talk about a bill that did pass, a bill that you were instrumental in bringing to fruition, and that is Breakfast After the Bell. Like most everything we've been talking about today, it involves kids, but, but it involves the public education system as well, which you have worked in for the last couple of decades throughout your professional life as a, a teacher, an instructional coach. How is Breakfast After the Bell working, and, and really what does it do? First of all, the very premise was when kids are coming to school late, if they happen to be hungry and have not had breakfast, can we please make sure they still have access to food as they're coming in and that the cafeteria isn't shutting down or the access to food isn't shutting down at the start of school? It makes sense, I think, on its face to try and have a schedule that people can count on and, and to find predictable. But the impact was that many times kids who were coming to school late were dealing with a number of other challenges, uh, including food insecurity. So if... For those children, coming to school is the only way they're going to get a meal. I would like them to have access to the breakfast and the lunch that they may have during that day. And as a teacher, we know that if kids are hungry, it's really hard for them to focus. And um, they often complain about headaches and stomach aches and are irritable and a lot of other things that affect their behavior when really they're just hungry. And so uh, we've been able to narrow down what is challenging to our kids who are struggling to focus and find that there are other challenges we can address now when we take the food insecurity issue off the table. Um, so around the state, I think we have seen a benefit of students being able to access food. And now the conversation around this is so different. As you might recall, this was a very partisan bill years before. It passed with bipartisan support eventually. And now... I just heard both sides of the aisle, leadership um, folks from both sides of the aisle, talk about their support for universal school meals. So now we're talking <laughs> about just making food access at school just part of the system because it costs more money and takes more time to facilitate the financial side of it. If we just paid for it, that would solve a lot of problems. And to be honest, we're paying for a lot of it already and it just seems to me like if your kids are going to have access to pe paper, pencils, and um, and books at school, uh, we we could make making sure that they are fed a part of that too. A hot meal is is very helpful. A hot meal is very helpful. It's nine thirty in the morning. You've got a pretty important meeting of the House Democratic Caucus at ten a.m. And I'm going to have to let you go pretty quickly here. Before I do, I want to talk about your role as majority floor leader in the state house. We've talked about this on here before, so if, if people have heard it before, you can listen to it again because I think it's interesting. <laughs> Tell me what the duties of the majority floor leader are in a pretty large majority. 
Yeah. So uh, I'll just use today as an example. This morning I was exchanging emails with the minority floor leader, with the speaker's attorney, and some other folks on staff just to make sure that everybody's prepared for what's going to happen today and later this week. So my job is just about making sure we know what bills are coming to the floor, making sure we are prepared for whatever amendments uh, may come our way. At this point in time, our bills don't have amendments because if they're coming to the floor, they're likely uh, already past that point in the process and are on third reading and ready for a final vote on the floor. Um, and as you know, but many of our listeners may not know, uh, the second year of a biennium is kind of just a refresh of the previous session. So the bills that did not pass the previous session in year one of the biennium are still alive and can be returned to different phases of the process. These are bills that were only returned to rules and didn't go back further to the committee um, level. So lots of communication. And then when we get to the floor, I'll be prepared to... Um, make sure that those who will be speaking to the bills know when they're coming up so that they're ready to do that. And of course, uh, work with the Republicans across the aisle to make sure that we are all on the same page in terms of the debate and, and prepared to, to see a vote come up. It's fun to watch you running around on the house floor. <laughs> yes. And one of that, maybe my last question here concerns being the floor leader during the pandemic years oh. when there wasn't a floor how did you manage to lead 50-some-odd people on Zoom? Yeah, so we made real good use of the chat features, and that was very helpful. I had the good fortune of working with incredible staff that could help with the behind-the-scenes. We had to institute a couple new kind of strategies to make sure we were prepared for the floor. I called them huddles. So if there was a big bill coming up with lots of speakers on it, I would pull together a Zoom huddle and just those who were going to be preparing for that bill would come together to to have that plan set in place before we got to the floor. And that's a whole lot easier to do when we're all in town and on the floor. But when everyone is in their own legislative districts behind their computer, we had to do that electronically. So some of those features have actually proven to be quite efficient, and we still use them even though we're here in person. But I think my favorite kind of memory of the floor was just Jacqueline Maycumber, Representative Maycumber, the minority floor leader, and I were the only ones who were on the floor. And so we were there in person, way far apart from each other, and uh, big screens of our colleagues were showing all of their faces. Um, and every once in a while, you know, we could just shout across the very empty floor to each other about when we were going to get to lunch or what was going to happen <laughs> next. And it was it was just a very unique scenario with just the two of us there. So this really will be the first year, I guess, that everybody is here. Last year it was pretty well populated, but there were occasionally people who voted from home or debated from home. This is business as usual. Yes. Again. Yes. We we provided some flexibility in the House rules to allow for people to still work from home if they um, if they had symptoms and, and we needed them to stay home so that we weren't continuing to spread um, COVID. That, you know, concern remains today. And I think we're getting better about just not coming to work when we're sick. I think that is widely acceptable now. <laughs> um, but I but but we we have moved past that phase where we're allowing that as as frequently as we did uh, when COVID was a greater risk. 
Representative Monica Stone here. Monica, I really have enjoyed talking to you. This was a great way to kick off. It's been four years since you were on Capital Ideas, and I appreciate you taking time on a really busy morning to come by for 20 minutes or so. Thank well, you. Dan, I always enjoy it, and you might recall that when I first arrived here as a brand new legislator, I spent my first morning with you um, trying do. to find my office. So <laughs> <laughs> I've always enjoyed uh, coming back to visit. I'm happy I could help. <laughs> There you have Representative Monica Stonier, and there you have episode 1601 of Capital Ideas. If you haven't subscribed after all this time, better late than never. It's free, and you can do so by hopping over to Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Washington State is your state, and the more you know about what's going on in your state capital and who the people are that are working for you, the better you can make this whole thing work for you and the people you care about. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening. <laughs>